Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today with me, I have the one and only James Krieger. James Krieger runs Weightology, which is a research review that I often recommend on the podcast. It is also one that our chief science officer at Tailored Coaching Method, Dr. Brandon Roberts, writes for on a regular basis. Uh, James is a wealth of knowledge. He has a master's degree in nutrition from the University of Florida and a second master's degree in exercise science from Washington State University because he is here from Washington, which is really cool because he is a native to my state, but he's a public speaker. He's a researcher. He's a published author and published researcher in some really big publications. He's been a coach over the years. He's worked in gyms. I mean, he's done it all in the industry. He's been in the industry for over three decades. So this is somebody that is coming on the podcast to really just honestly lay the foundation of volume research. We dive deep into training volume because it is a very hot topic and it's been a hot topic for years now. And when we talk about training for muscle growth, body composition changes, and even strength performance to somewhat of a degree, volume is going to come up one way or another, whether it's volume per session, volume per training block, volume per week, volume per body part. It doesn't matter. We're talking reps, sets, anything. We always have to talk about volume because it's such a big equalizer across all different types of training goals, modalities, and ways of researching muscle growth and body composition change. Well, James has become known as like the volume guy, so to speak, because he has dug deeper into the volume honestly, than anybody else in the industry. So he's known as the person you go to when you want to learn more about training volume. And I have learned a wealth of knowledge from him over the years. So I was really excited to bring him on and dive into training volume. Uh, More specifically, how to periodize training volume, how to count training volume, what kind of volume actually counts and matters. Is volume more important than intensity or frequency? And how do those things fluctuate and adjust over time? And then we actually shift gears and I bring up body fat testing. So DEXAs, BOD pods, BIAs, things like that, as well as insulin sensitivity, because he has been known for putting out a lot of, I would call like myth busting research based articles over the years. Um, That's actually how I originally found him. So we're going to crush those as well. So you're going to get a lot of information, mostly about volume, but we're going to touch on some other cool topics. I think you're going to get a lot out of. Um, So I would highly suggest grabbing a a piece of paper and a pen because this one is going to get deep and you're going to want to take some notes. So once again, this is James Krieger from Weightology. And without any further ado, let's get into the interview. All right, James, man, I'm excited to have you on to cover volume in general because it's such a common topic inside of training, mainly training hypertrophy, but training period. And we talk about it all the time and I'm always getting questions on it and there's nobody better to talk to about it than you, in my opinion. Um, And I really like the way you've laid out a lot of things. And and I'm going to first and foremost tell the listeners that I'm going to link your uh, volume Bible in the description of this podcast. Um, There is literally, I mean, that's why it's called the volume Bible, right? There's literally nothing like that online that covers so much about training volume. So um, thank you for that, man. It's really, really cool. And before kind of getting into the topics that I have uh, laid out for volume, I want to ask why, why did you become the volume guy? Like what made you go that route? (laughs) I don't know. I guess uh, I've always been fascinated by training volume. Um, And I mean, I remember getting in kind of the, uh, uh, back in the nineties, getting in online debates on like the, uh, hit communities, you know, like the hit digest, it was like an email digest, uh, run by a guy named Rob Spector at the time. And, uh, uh, I remember getting in debates with people and, and I had just had always just been kind of fascinated by the topic and, and there was so little research on the topic too, that, that I think that's what intrigued my interest, 
you know, and, and over time, you know, just more research came out and, and my thinking has evolved a lot over time too. You know, I've um, kind of gone through an entire spectrum of thinking in terms of training volume over time and kind of arriving to where I'm at now in terms of kind of viewing volume as a, basically a form of progressive overload. But, uh, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, to me, it's been one of the most fascinating topics about training for hypertrophy, just because of all the debate about it. And also, like I said, when, when there's not a lot of research on something, it's kind of fun to speculate on things and, you know, until you start to get more data, you know, on it. So what that was actually one of the first things I wanted to ask you is how, or I guess, what are the biggest things that you may have changed your opinion on in regards to volume once you started going into more of the research? And obviously, the research from when it first started of like more is better, you know, years ago in the first research study on volume for fiber, if came out compared to now, it's obviously changed a lot, but how has your opinion changed as far as how you look at it? I think the biggest change for me has been the individualization of volume. And I've kind of moved away from having this recommended range. You know, we often hear 10 to 20 weekly sets. And obviously some of that was based off research that, that I did with Brad, Brad Schoenfeld, you know, meta-analyses and things like that. And I've kind of moved away from, from having this target range for people and instead uh, using a more, I would say, auto-regulatory and, and individualized approach. And I think that's, that's, that's the, where my thinking has changed the most in the past few years and, and why now, you know, I kind of look back on all the volume debates and things like that. And now I kind of look back on them and I think, oh, that was just all kind of dumb to argue about that stuff, you know? Um, you know, but that's kind of how my thinking is, has kind of evolved the most, I would say. So one of the interesting things to me is it, it seems like it's used as uh, almost like an equalizer in a lot of research because, you know, frequency was a thing. And then it was like, oh, that's, that's really important. It's like, oh, when you equate volume doesn't matter and then it was like intensity yeah uh, when you equate volume it doesn't matter you know do you feel like it's still one of the i hate to use the word most important i feel like that's a very uh it's a very confident word but one of the most important things in order to kind of equate or regulate what we're looking for because it kind of does uh equalize things so to speak oh, oh yeah definitely you know and 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 i want to you know um you know there's so much data when you equate volume that 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 uh, outcomes tend to be similar. I mean, that isn't always the case, and it also depends on how you define volume sometimes. But, but for the most part, um, you know, volume is an important variable. And and I mean, you can just even think about it like this. I mean, you know, when you go from zero sets to one set, that's a that's an increase in volume, right? And like, you know, it's obviously an important variable because you have to have some volume to stimulate adaptation, right? I mean, you go from no training to training, that's an increase in volume. The question is, okay, well, you know, uh, how much volume do I need? And that's where I think, you know, an individualized approach, I think tends to pro will probably work the best for most people. But, uh, um, but yeah, I think it is, it is one of the, the key important variables uh, in any type of uh, training regimen. So you know, I think what would be helpful for a lot of people, um, and this this is like a really simplified uh, question, but first defining like what you would consider volume, because obviously there's different types of volume, and I think people get confused at times. Yeah. And then also, how do we even go about individualizing it? Because that right there 
makes uh, just for people listening, it means you have to be patient because it means you got to test and then, <laughs> you know, yeah, change things yeah. over time. And people want to just say, no, like, just tell me exactly how much you do right yeah. now. And that's just yeah, how it yeah, works. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you could define how you look at volume and how somebody could individualize it, I think that would give a lot of context. Yeah. So I, I tend to use, uh, um, I think Greg Knuckles um, kind of had the best definition of volume I've seen. Um, which I think probably works the best. Uh, and and I, what that means is basically just the number of hard sets per exercise or the number of hard sets per muscle group. Um, so, so sets that, you know, I don't necessarily mean sets to failure, but sets that take a, a, a fair amount of effort, right? You know, um, certainly, so that doesn't mean warm-up sets, things like that. I'm talking about where you know, the set is challenging. Like I say, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to go to failure, but it should be a challenging set. Um, and that's, that's how I would define volume. So, in, uh, you know, just the number of hard sets. And I think that tends to work the best because you can start to compare different rep schemes and things like that. The, the problem with other types of measuring volume, for example, volume load, things like that is you can't necessarily compare like different rep schemes. So we know from research now that, you know, if I do three sets of 10 to failure, I'm going to get similar hypertrophy as if I did three sets of 20 to failure, right? Um, but if I did something like volume load, the volume load between those two are going to be completely different. But they're both examples of three hard sets, right? And so so I think using that hard sets definition, I think really works the best in terms of, of volume. Um, and then to move on to, okay, well, how do I individualize that? Um, you know, I tend to, I have a very simple method um, that I think can work for most people um, from beginners all the way to advanced trainees. And I like, you know, say starting with the lowest volume that you can, um, especially with beginners. I mean, it could be as little as one set per exercise, maybe two exercises, three exercises per muscle group. And stick with that low volume as long as you're progressing. So as long as you're able to, you know, each session, you're able to do a few more, uh, you know, maybe another rep or, or you're able to increase the weight a little bit or whatever, you know, following some double progression model, as long as you're able to keep progressing at whatever volume you're at, stay with that volume. Um, then when you hit a plateau, like, you know, you're kind of stuck at a certain you know, number of reps, certain weight, whatever. And you've been stuck at that for, let's say, you know, for, you know, two, three, four training sessions. It's like, okay, it's probably time to up your volume now. And then I, I say, increase your volume as little as possible. So, um, you know, in, now in some cases, if you're only doing one set per exercise, then you've obviously got to double the volume and do two sets. But, um, you know, I, I favor just adding one set and then see how you do. Um, ideally that should start to bump you up in progress a little bit. And again, then you just follow that formula. You keep at that volume until you hit a rut or you hit a plateau. And then you try to bump the volume up again and you keep doing this over time until finally you've tried a bump volume up, let's say a couple times and it hasn't done anything like, you know, let's say you're doing now, let's say you're at 12 weekly sets per muscle group, whatever you've bumped it up to 14, nothing, like it didn't help you at all. Now you bump it up to 16, still nothing. At that point, trying to keep increasing volume isn't gonna help you anymore because you've already tried a couple times, it's not working. And so that's where I tend to favor at least at this point, 
a deload or some type of a volume cycling approach where you say, okay, I've maxed out the volume of what I can do. Um, further increases aren't helping me anymore. And uh, maybe it's time to back off, deload, maybe switch exercises or, or not, um, and then start the whole process again. So um, what I like about that approach is it can work for, you know, whether you're a beginner or advanced, it can, it individualizes the volume, not only in terms of yourself, but even individualizes volume in terms of exercise, muscle group or whatever. So because you can follow this approach for each exercise you do or each uh, muscle group or whatever. So for example, if I'm doing, let's say three exercises for chest, let's say I'm improving in two of those exercises, but I've hit a rut in one of the exercises, I just bump the volume up in that one exercise, but I keep the volume the same in the other two exercises, right? And so it, allow, it allows me to individualize the volume, not only in an individual, but in each muscle group and in each exercises. And then it avoids this whole question of how many sets should I do for chest? How many sets should I do for triceps? You know, um, it's a it's an auto-regulatory approach that I think, uh, and it's a very flexible approach that I think can work well for a lot of people. Now, that said, I think if most people follow that approach, I think not everyone, but I, I think a good chunk of people will probably still fall in that 10 to 20 weekly set range. Um, uh, but you know, I don't tell people ahead of time, Hey, that's what you need to shoot for. I just say, chances are most people are probably going to end up in that range if they kind of follow that approach. So, yeah. but some people may end up with more. I mean, there was a study just published where there was a few people, you know, it was a, it was a really well done study. It was, a, it, um, uh, it was a within subject design. So each subject, you know, they trained one leg with a certain volume and the other leg with another volume. And one leg was like, they did, uh, everyone was assigned to 22 weekly sets, just boom, didn't matter what, right? The other leg was assigned where people were just given a small 20% increase in, the over, in volume uh, compared to what they were doing previously. And what the researchers found is that the people did the best when they just had the small increase in volume compared to what they were doing previously. And there were some people that they went from 30 sets to, you know, 30, uh, I don't know, a, a, I think it was a 20% increase. So that'd be 30 to 36 weekly sets or whatever. So there were some people that were above that quote unquote optimal range and they still did better. Um, but again, it just, I think it more gets to this tailored individualized approach, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I've, uh, I have a few follow-up questions for that. I think that's super helpful. One is that, you know, I would agree with the 10 to 20, like people end up falling there, but I think I like that approach because, I think when people hear the 10 to 20, they almost, and I did this at first when this first came about, it was like, oh, it's like 10 is low, 15 is moderate, 20 is really high. So it was just like, I go from 10 and then I move all body parts to 15 when I'm ready. And then all body parts oh, yeah. to 20, you know, and this yeah. kind of allows people to say, cause there's certain people, like I can think of my training partner, he has huge triceps, no matter what he does. And it's like, you probably yeah. can just lower that and focus on something else that's a weak part. And you don't have to have everything in the same place. Yeah. Um, now, I know there's not much research, and this is a topic right now I've been really interested in because there isn't a lot of research on hypertrophy periodization specifically. It's more like periodization on other things, and they're trying to extrapolate, you know, hypertrophy from it. Um, yeah. 
do you think this is kind of the best approach? Because it's the closest thing to like a, a sound long-term periodization model, in my opinion, of, of yeah. hypertrophy. There's no research on it yet, but. I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, yeah, I, I do think it's probably the best approach. I mean, you know, I, I just think it, it uh, you know, I like the auto-regulation of it. Um, I like the simplicity of it. It's not a difficult, you know, it's not like it's difficult to program, mm -hmm. you know, Um and also, I even like it from a, I'd say like an injury prevention or just long-term training perspective. So, you know, if you're a beginner, you know, if you use this approach, um, you know, you can get away with a low volume training for an extremely long period of time. And, and it's kind of interesting because I think back to my own training, you know, when I first started lifting and, you know, you know, and, and we're talking like, geez, I'm closing in on 30 years ago now, but, uh, um, you know, I started off as a low volume hit guy, you know, my training volume was really low and I'll still say probably to this day, I'd say probably 50 to 75% of my gains came within the first two years of training that way. I like, I, I, I trained very low volume for a long time. And then obviously from there on, I had to start upping my volume to get more gains out. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's an approach, you know, looking back, I wish, you know, I wish I had followed this approach for, for years and years, because, you know, I think when I started to do volume, I think I probably upped my volume too fast and did too much. Um, and, uh, you know, I think from a longevity standpoint, I just think, you know, gradual increases in volume are just going to work a lot. That's going to be a lot easier on your joints. You know, um, you know, I, I just think, uh, uh I, I just think, from a, yeah, I just think from a longevity standpoint, it can work well too, you know, um, I kind of wish, I wish I could go back and redo all my training all over again, you know, yeah. no, I can't, but you know, uh, so, you know, one thing that I notice, um, outside of people who are, um, uh, enhanced bodybuilders, stuff like that, uh, there's been a lot of people that are really into intensity over volume. So they have like low volume programs and it's all about going balls to the wall, training to failure, going hard. But a lot of times they're also using like just machines. So when you think of like the joint health thing, it's like, well, like, is it because of that? Like you're able to do some of that. But my question, you know, kind of stems from when you, you mentioned three sets of 10 versus three sets, of 20 versus more of like volume load style. Um, the thing that we see here is going close to failure, um, creating a lot of maximal tension in the muscle, let's say. Um, yeah. Do you think that that's like, does that ultimately mean that that's the most important thing and it doesn't matter? Or is there a way to know like, yeah, that's the most important thing, but, you know, certain individuals do respond better to three sets of 10 versus, yeah, you know, sets of five at a really heavy load, even though the load and the, the amount of tension created or whatever is there. Um you know, I just, it's, I guess it's hard because sometimes when people focus on even the style you're training, the hit training that you were talking about, I think yeah. of it and I never did it that way. So I don't know for sure, but I think of if I was to do like one or two sets all out, just crazy training, it would take me three, four, five sets to warm up to that max load and then go all out. So yeah, yeah. is that junk volume or is it still pretty like conducive to muscle growth? Cause those warm up sets are still pretty fucking hard because the end set has to be extremely does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and, you know, there, I mean, I think of, I mean, obviously Dorian Yates was enhanced, but mm -hmm. I remember years ago, you know, there was like, uh, you know, I think he had this video blood and guts video. I know he had a book. I think I even had his book like years ago. And, and, 
you know, he would always talk about that. He, he'd only do like just one or two all out sets. But the thing is, if you watch the video, his warm up sets were pretty intense. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like they were still pretty tough sets that he was doing in his warm up. So, you know, um, so it's really hard to say, uh, um, you know, because, yeah, sometimes people doing even some of these hip style, you look at their warm ups and they're like, oh. You know, you're still pushing it pretty hard on your warm-ups. You might not be going to failure, but you know, <laughs> it's um, so it, it's it's interesting to say. I do think that uh, again, I have no research to back this up, and maybe it's purely psychological. But I think some people probably respond better to certain rep ranges than other people do. You know, and and there could be a variety of factors for that. And like I said, part of it just could be psychological, what you like to do. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, some people really like loading up for sets of, you know, five or six to eight reps or whatever. And, you know, other people might like your 12 to 15. Now I think, uh, for certain exercises, you know, like I said, if you're doing a lot of ISO work, it's probably better to be a little bit in the higher rep range. It's just going to be easier on your joints, but, uh, um, um, but other than that, you know, I think there's just a lot of room for personal preference, which, which I like, you know, I, I think people tend to people, I think they're too much in search of just some optimal program without realizing there's a lot of room for personal preference in programming and training. Um, like I said, you know, we, you mentioned frequency earlier, you know, there's really not, you know, there's a lot of room in how you want to how in terms of frequency as long as your volume is equated you know if you like you know doing each muscle group twice a week then you can do that if you if you like doing each muscle group three times a week you can do that and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of flexibility in the programming there and i think the same thing is with rep ranges you know you can kind of you know kind of do the rep ranges that you like the best and that that feel the best for you without compromising your gains you know so there, there's obviously I don't think there's research point to an answer to this, but based on everything you've been able to see, do you think that um, those who respond better to certain things, it's less about because if I think of volume being the most important thing for growth or like the equator, I even think about like if even if maybe my t fiber type is different and I can do sets 10 better than sets five, maybe I psychologically get scared of lifting heavy. So I don't push myself. I don't get as close to failure. So I do less volume without realizing it. Cause I'm counting sets, you know, on a yeah. certain rep range versus somebody else. Um, but like looking at all these different ways of going about it, even frequency, um, I do better with a, a two times a week frequency. And I know some people who do f just fine with one times a week. And there's reason to believe that that would not be optimal. But if, their performance isn't hindered because their fiber type or their ability to buffer lactate or whatever. Like, I guess, I guess what I'm asking is like all these things kind of boil down to, is it just come down to whatever that specific person has to do in order to maximize volume? Like, and that could be different. I, I think so. I think so. I, I think that's really what it comes down to for the most part, you know, um, uh, it's like you just said, I mean, the data would suggest that, you know, doing each body part like once a week probably wouldn't be ideal. But for some people, if that allows them to train harder with more volume, um, assuming it's not just junk volume or whatever, then maybe that's best for them. Again, I mean, I just think, I think individualization tends to get forgotten, you know, with a lot of training and stuff. And, and uh, uh, you know, I've just, you know, over the years, I've, 
developed a big appreciation for just individualizing training programs for people according to their preferences. I, I mean, it's very similar to diet. You know, we talk about, you know, different dietary approaches, whether it's low carb or whatever. But, you know, the funny thing is that the best predictor of, of success with dieting is adherence, right? Which means there's a huge amount of room for personal preference. And, and, um, and, and I think the same is true with training too. I think, you know, there's just a huge amount of room for personal preference and how you program your training. Um, uh, and I think people worry too much, worry too much about, am I, you know, is, is what I'm doing optimal? Like if you're training hard, if you're trying to progress and you're getting sufficient volume, you know, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of room in how you program, you know? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think people tend to get hung up a little bit in, in, in little details that probably don't matter in the, in the grand scheme of things. So one of the things that isn't necessarily, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to contribute to how much volume you can do. Um, but like RPE and RIR has been a big topic yeah. and, um, you know, I'm, I don't have, actually, you know, obviously our chief science officer, Brandon Roberts. So it's nice cause I can bounce things off him and he's a researcher and I'm just a coach. So we have this like ability yeah. to kind of go back and forth. And that's always one topic that I'm, I like talking about because in, in the real world, it's very rare that I see people truly able to go to the right or understand the proper RIR. So when we talk yeah. about research showing you can leave two, three reps in the tank and you're going to grow just as much as going to failure. Yeah. Like I, I've always questioned that, you know? And so one thing I've started to do with a lot of clients is to have like a descending RIR. So set one might be three RIR, then two and then one and then zero. And I do that for initially just cause I'm showing them that you're actually not three RIR on that first set and they can see yeah, yeah. like going to failure. Um, yeah. So I guess my question for you would be, you know, what is the research? Because I know it's different for strength versus hypertrophy. What does the research actually show as far as where we should be relative to failure for maximizing growth? And like, what do you see people doing or, that works best? Yeah. yeah. So I would say the majority of studies suggest that you're, you'll get similar gains, whether you do go to failure or whether you leave a few reps in the tank. Um, there's a few studies that suggest it might even be a little bit better to leave a few reps in the tank, but that's kind of, that's a little bit speculative because a lot of studies have the sample sizes are too small to really draw a firm conclusion on that. So, but, but I, I think I can say with at least some reasonable confidence that, you know, leaving two to three reps in the tank is going to work probably just as well as going to failure. The exception to that is if you're doing like really high reps, you know, 20, 30 reps, you're probably going to want to get closer to failure on that stuff. But if you're in your typical bodybuilding rep range, you know, eight to 12 or whatever, if you do 10 reps when you could have done 12, it's probably going to do just as well as if you did 12. Um, now that said, you know, you bring up a good point. Well, how do people know? Um, and it's very hard to, to be objective about, you know, especially if you're not an experienced trainee and even experienced trainees sometimes can uh, sometimes um, not correctly estimate how many reps they are short of failure. Um, now, you if you want to get really fancy, you can use stuff like velocity loss and, you know, measure the velocity and stuff. And uh, the problem is that's a pain in the ass to set up and like, you know, so what I like to to do kind of my rough 
uh, way of, of estimating when you're getting pretty close to failure is when you have a significant slowdown, a really noticeable slowdown in rep speed, right? Um, uh, that's going to correlate quite well with velocity loss, um, the appropriate velocity loss as far as how close you are to failure. So, you know, if you're, you know, say you're doing reps and, uh, you know, each rep is taking you two seconds and all of a sudden now you're at like four seconds for the next rep, you're, you're pretty close to failure now. You're probably within a rep or two from failure. And so, so I think that can be actually a pretty good, um, objective indicator of when you're you're within a few reps of failures when you have a noticeable slowdown in rep speed like you can definitely tell okay i'm really slowing down here on these reps you know definitely yeah i might i might have a few left in the tank but but that's probably all i got left mm -hmm. so so if 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 you know um i think that that can actually work i think pretty well for most people and then you don't need fancy you know you don't need to be measuring your velocity and you know i'll have you know some velocity measurement set up or anything like that <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever written about this topic or not but like it it makes me think of um I, I briefly touched on it is uh like muscle fiber types and way back that was like a thing it was like you have to train very specific and it was kind of cool it was like a cool exciting thing <laughs> to think about um and i think about this now because i know you know I had like my brother-in-law was spotting me and I was doing just totally fine. Like reps were going and then there was a rep where it was just done, you know, and it yeah, just, you just hit yeah. that tank. So speaking of velocity, I think some people can kind of hit that wall faster. And I wonder yep. if that has anything to do with your fiber type dominance or your athletic ability, I guess, compared to the rep <laughs> ranges you're in. And if any even matters at all. Yeah, I'm not sure. It, it, the fiber type is tough because there's not a lot of data on it. And, um, I mean, everybody, even if you are some predominant fiber type, everybody is pretty much a mixed fiber type. It's just like mm. some people might have a little bit more fast twitch than slow twitch and other people might be closer to 50-50 or whatever. Um, and, and whether, you know, if you're a person who just hits the wall right away, whether that's related to fiber type or not, you know, I'm, I, I don't know. Um, there's not enough, I, I feel like there's not enough data. I mean, because to really verify it, you'd have to do biopsies and like all this stuff, you know, to it, it's not easy research to do. So, um, but that said, I do agree, though, that people will vary sometimes in how quickly they'll hit that wall, you know, and, uh, um, um, you know, some people, they'll hit, hit that wall really quick and they don't even have another rep in them. And other people, they'll hit that, they can get get that noticeable slowdown in rep speed and they could probably still eke out a few more reps. Um, that said, I don't think, I think in the grand scheme, it probably doesn't matter that much. You know, you're still training hard in either case. So, you know, I, I think, you know, um, I think it's uh, kind of nitpicking over details that probably don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, you know? Yeah. So, I think that's, you know, and this is a good transition to a few periodization questions I have for you. And I think that the more and more I've read into this and try to look at it, and there's a lot of, there's a few researchers that are publishing different like reviews on different types of this uh, type of research. And a lot of it kind of boils down to, in my opinion, more like programming versus periodization because a lot of it boils down to like per week is more of a focus than it is like block to block to block or long term yeah. um and with this like you know you kind of said like everybody's probably pretty 50 50 most of the time and if we look at periodization 
what we think, at least for hypertrophy, it's like, you should probably do a mixture of rep ranges. Is that typically yeah. what you recommend for these people? It's like, yeah, you know, we should be focusing on the rep ranges that we like most or the exercise, but in general, for most of our muscle groups, we should be having some that are like, let's say in the five to 10 and then some in the 10 to 15 range or something like that. I, I, I think so. Um, if anything, even if there's not a physiological benefit, there's probably just a psychological benefit to having some of that variation. Um, and then, like I said, also just from a joint perspective, you know, if you're training in the five to eight rep range all the time, um, even if with compound movements, it's probably going to start to wear on your joint some. And, and so, um, so even just from a joint health perspective, I, I tend to favor, you know, some variation in your rep ranges, you know, so um, um, even if there isn't necessarily, like I said, it, you know, if there's a muscle building benefit that might be questionable. Um, but what I would say there's other benefits beyond just the hypertrophy. Um, so yeah, I, I do think most people would probably benefit from some variation in their rep ranges. You know, it, like I said, it, it, it and it doesn't necessarily be, need to be like these, like I said, like you said, it doesn't have to be block periodization models. It can be rep ranges even within the same training session, right? You know, um, variation in rep ranges in the same training session. So, um, so yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, the other question I had about kind of like, period, again, periodization, but more programming, and this kind of ties to what you just said of like per session versus per week or per month or per block, um, is, you know, I guess, how do we, how do we think about like volume per session to fit into that per week model? Cause I know you've, uh, I want to say it's in the volume, Bob, you talk about like, I think 10 sets per muscle in a session kind of max it out. But when we look at all these different factors and then you look at people too, like I always, whenever I say like, it's probably most beneficial to have like two times a week frequency and people will be like, well, what about so-and-so? And I'm like, well, drugs. And then they're like, what about, um, Doug Miller? And I'm like, he's just a freak. He's a God of the bodybuilding. And yeah, yeah, yeah. has he ever done anything different? Because maybe he would be even better if he did. Two yeah, yeah, Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But there's obviously outliers. Um, however, like why is there a limit per session? Is it just because you start to get tired and you can't lift as heavy or is there actual physiological things that change? Yeah. Yeah. I do think theoretically there is some limit you now where that is uh, exactly. It's going to vary person to person. Um, you know, on average, some of the research suggests um, and I know that there's, for example, rodent research, of course, rodent sets aren't the same as human sets, but, you know, they saw a plateau in muscle protein synthesis once they got up to like 10 sets on these rodents in a, in a single training session. Um, you know, where it is in humans, you know, I don't know, could be in the six to 10 range, but again, that's a rough range. Some people it could be more whatever, but I think there's, there are, um, physiological reasons why, uh, well, I think it's actually two reasons why I think number one, just fatigue. Um, you just reach a point where, you know, the fatigue is just going to limit the quality of your sets. You know, if, if you're doing too much volume on one muscle group in a session. Um, but also I think physiologically there's, there's limits to how much muscle protein synthesis you can stimulate in a certain training session. I mean, cause that's the ultimate goal, right? You want to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, but um, as you keep adding volume in a single session, you get a point of diminishing returns in that training session. And so you might reach a point where, yeah, it's probably better to break it up. Um, you know, um, and there's some data to support that. Um, 
you know, uh, there was a study on women, I think. Um, and actually these women, I think they, they took their volume and actually broke it up. I and mean, there were some limitations to the study, but they actually broke it up into two daily, two times a day sessions. So their volume was the same, but they actually had a, a little increase in muscle size from just breaking it up, probably because the quality of their sets improved, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you're doing so much volume in a session that the, that your quality of your training drops off so much, yeah, you might, you might be better off splitting it up, you know, but again, it's going to vary person to person, but I think most people probably going to be better off, you know, not doing too much volume for one muscle group in one training session. So, and just cause I know people want literal numbers, answers, stuff like that. Um, number one, like, uh, Rodent research, people always say, like, yeah, but that's on, like, rats and stuff. But I'm pretty sure, like, when we're talking about uh, protein, amino acid, stuff like that, it's actually relatively similar to humans, um, yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. Rodent muscle is not radically different from human muscle. So it's That's like, why it's used you know, so often, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and then the for, like, the the actual number for sets – obviously, there's, there's one case where it's, like, certain people can keep their performance high for longer. So, obviously, there's just individual differences of, like, when you start – your performance just starts tanking like that. You got to stop. But is there an actual number that you recommend? I want to say, I feel like I read eight to 10 on the volume Bible. Yeah, yeah probably sure. around there, six to 10, eight to 10. I think once, you know, assuming you're taking long rest between sets, I think once you start getting beyond 10 in a training session, um, I think for most people, that's probably just going to turn into just junk volume and, and just going to add to your fatigue and probably not, you know, not help you that much. Okay. So, um, um, and then, one of the, there's, there's a couple more things with the periodization idea. And, and one of them goes back to the volume cycling thing you talked about. Um, and there's this idea of, and I don't know if there's research on this, so I'd be interested if there is, but the, uh, the first person I heard talk about it was Mike Erzertel. And then I heard you talk about it a little bit too, but that's like the whole sensitization idea, right? We yeah. take, we take time away. And I want to say, I just had Brad on the podcast and I want to say yep. he told me that they're working on, um, something that actually kind of eludes that, but it's probably like you need a longer period of time away, but you also don't do it very often. So he said something like once, maybe twice a year, a year you take like a full deload where you do nothing to just completely sensitize was his idea behind it. Um, just your thoughts. Is there any research to support this idea of stepping away from high volume training and come back to it and it, and it not just being something where, yeah, you, you sensitize, but you could have got the same gains if you just kept going, although you wouldn't have had this huge spike, it would have been the same because you'd never stepped away or is there actually a, a difference? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And there really hasn't been any good, re at this point, it's just all kind of theoretical. We do know that, I mean, there's, there's one study where they had some people, uh, you know, do the same, just train continuously. It was something like 16 or 24 weeks. I don't remember exactly. And then they had another group take three, two, three week breaks. Um, and what was interesting is that the group that did two, three week breaks, um, still gain the same amount of muscle as the people that train continuously for 24 weeks. And what was interesting is if you look at what happened is after the three week breaks, as soon as they started training again, they gained a bunch of muscle really fast to catch up to the people that had been training continuously. So at least, at least it brings out the idea that um, training layoffs do resensitize your muscles to a stimulus. So we do know that the question is, what happens is if I, let's say, rather than completely stopping training, what if I 
you know, dramatically just decreasing my volume to a really low volume, will that help me maintain my muscle? Because we know it takes very little training to maintain versus to gain. Will that help me maintain my muscle, but also give me the benefit of that resensitization? That we don't know. Um, it's all theoretical. Um, um, obviously, that's the idea behind volume cycling. Um, but until we actually get some research to look at it, it's all speculative. Um, um, I, I personally think there probably is a benefit to it. But that's me being speculative at this point. You know, maybe it maybe it doesn't really matter, or maybe you do need to completely take time off, like Brad said. You know, it's hard to say. Um, but at least there's some hypothetical, you know, rationale behind it. It's just the question is, you know, does it actually work when you translate it into practice? And that we don't know. You know. Yeah. So. I'd be interested in that because I know for me, like when I think of taking three full weeks off more than anything, like mentally, I'd be like, Fuck, I just, I, I want to be active. I want to do something. So it would be nice to know that you could do a little something that would have, you know, yeah, some kind of benefit. Um, the last question I had with the, the periodization um, is, is when we go through different phases of dieting, essentially like fat loss or muscle growth is really the two phases. Obviously there's maintenance phase, but when we think of those two, I know like for a long time, there was a debate of like, no, you should lower volume when you go into a calorie deficit and focus on intensity. And then there was, there's a lot of people that say the opposite, but then a lot of research came out that was like, basically like you can hardly do anything at all and you will maintain your muscle. So now it's like, what, is there any research to suggest actually what is best during a fat loss phase, like how you should manage it? Or is it, is it more psychological? Uh, uh, for during a fat loss phase. So actually I think Brad, or maybe it was Eric Helms or maybe both that were, they just had a review paper. They kind of reviewed the research on that. And at least at this point, the data would suggest it's probably better to keep your volume up. Like don't, don't reduce your volume during fat loss phases. Um, probably just because when you, when you go on a diet, um, um, it might impair muscle protein synthesis to a point. So if you reduce your training volume on top of that, yeah. you're, you're not getting the stimulus that you need to, you know, so I'm a, I favor trying to maintain your training volume when you're in a deficit. Now, what that means all as well is uh, you don't want to be super aggressive on your deficits, right? You know, which I'm generally been a fan of anyway. Like, you know, um, if you're trying to maintain your muscle, um, you want to keep your deficits fairly small. You know, you don't want to have these radical aggressive deficits. It's just, uh, um, uh, but if you keep with small deficits, um, you'll be able to make, you should be able to maintain your training volume. Uh, but yeah, I tend to favor the approach of maintaining your, your training volume and not, not decreasing it during a deficit. Right. So obviously as long as you can, right. If somebody's lifting six days a week and they're 12 weeks into a cut, they might have to go to five cause they're just, Oh yeah. Energy, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So that makes sense. The, 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 I have a couple things I just want to wrap up with and it has nothing to do with volume, but, um, there's some of the first topics that I discovered you regarding, and I just want to bring them up because I think it's just good topics for the listeners. And, um, the first one, and this is like, you could literally probably do a two hour podcast just on this topic. So we'll kind of put it in a nutshell, but I was going to write an article about, um, it started with an in-body thing. And then it was like, well, I should talk about bod pot too. Cause I had all these clients doing body fat measurements and I kept kind of telling them like, you really don't want to get too hung up on this. Cause it's really not that accurate. And so yeah. I'm starting to like 
look for research to support this. And then lo and behold, I find this like, I think it's like four or five part series from you on all these different things. And I was just like, yeah. holy shit. So um, in general, I guess like what made you want to write that and, and just kind of debunk in general body fat scanning as a whole for me, just so people listening can hear it. Cause I think it's powerful. There's so many gyms that use in bodies in these things. And then people get so upset when it fluctuates, when it could just be something completely non-related to body fat or muscle. Uh, yeah. What, what actually, um, inspired me to write that series of articles was actually uh i used to work at the i used to be the the head of research for 2020 lifestyles like a a, a weight loss program at pro club in bellevue mm -hmm. and um and i remember at the time um you know they were doing bia on the on the clients and sometimes they were just getting weird stuff. Like, you know, these clients would lose weight, but their body fat percentage would go up. And so uh, the CEO at the time asked me, Hey, could you kind of look into this stuff? Why is this happening or whatever? And so that's where I started to dig into the research on body comp testing and everything. Um, and then I just started to, to understand that, you know, everything that you hear about body comp testing it works great for group averages. Like if I have a group, like if I'm doing research and I want to compare one group to another group and I'm taking the average of each group, that, that works fine, right? But that I discovered that on an individual level, the error rates are just super high. They're so high that it doesn't, it's not even really, it's too high to be useful to, to help people really, you know. Um, the error rates are a lot of times higher than, the changes that you'll see in body composition, especially over short periods of time. And, and so that was just very transformative in my thinking. And so I did, you know, um, you know, some lectures for the staff at pro club at the time on this and stuff. And then when I left pro club and I started weightology, I was like, you know what, this would just make a great article series, you know? So I took, I took those presentations that I had done and basically turned them into articles and, you know, even though, you know, I wrote those articles, you know, what God, I wrote them in like probably 2009, 2010. So, I mean, you know, we're mm -hmm. talking, you know, 12, 13 years ago. Um, there's, they're still accurate to this day. I mean, nothing has changed, you know, body comp testing is still not very accurate on an individual basis. And, and it never will be accurate on an individual basis because you can't, it's impossible to measure, truly measure body fat in an individual you know, without killing them and dissecting them, right? I mean, everything is some estimate based on something else we can measure. And I think that's something people should understand. We're not, when you do a body fat test, we are not testing your body fat. We are measuring something that, that um, is related to body fat. And then we're making some, uh, an estimate or projection on what we think your body fat is based on this other thing that we measured. And that's true even with DEXA and hydrostatic weighing or whatever. So, um, so that's why, you know, you're right. It's like people should not get hung up on the numbers of these body fat tests. You know, it's like, um, and, and you, you don't need them. You literally don't need them. All you need is measure your body weight. Circumference measurements are work great, you know, especially like waist size, things like that. Um, and then just use your strength in the gym as kind of a, a proxy for, you know, whether you're maintaining your muscle and that's really all, you, you know, and then you can do, you know, obviously photos over time and things like that. That's really all you need. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you don't need the, the body comp testing itself. I mean, 
I mean, honestly, the only time I recommend body comp testing is if, um, is if you're a physique competitor and let's say you've never, especially if you've never done a competition and you need a rough idea of what body weight you need to get to, to be in contest shape. Then I say, okay, get a body comp test done, at least get a rough estimate of what a target body weight might be for you. And then you can go from there. But other than that, it, it doesn't really give you any useful information anyway. And, and if anything, if you put too much faith in the number, it, it can kind of have the opposite effect that you want, you know, on you, it can, it can make you think you're not progressing as much as maybe you really are, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I, uh, I had, I've had multiple knee surgeries, but one of my knee surgeries, I, I went and did a DEXA, not because it was right after I got cleared to finally start training again. And I wasn't going to like see how much muscle I could build or how, cause I know the recomp would be just be insane. Cause I'm finally able to train after eight weeks oh, of yeah, my training, yeah. but I wanted to see the difference between my legs to see how much size was lost, you know? Um, but the interesting thing was that they also had, it wasn't an in body, but it was something that you stand on you hold the things, you know, it's kind of like a BIA. And yep. the difference between that and the DEXA was 10%. Like it literally said 23% and then 13% body fat. And oh, it's yeah, just, that's and huge. I literally stepped off of it, walked across, laid down in the DEXA and did it. Like that's how quick it was. So it's just crazy. And I think the, the thing that shocked me was the percentages uh, that you broke down in the article of like how big of a swing it could be up or down, um, yeah. especially with things like BIA, which I believe is like, correct me if I'm wrong, you hold it and it sends like a, a current through one yep. limb to the yeah. next which yep. what water carbs, all these things can fluctuate that tremendously. Yep. Uh, oh yeah. And, and you can actually, I have an article on my site called um, cheat your body fat test and I actually show people things that you can do to change your body fat results just by like changing your diet just one day and, or, you know, eating food right before your test or whatever. I think you literally can, can change the outcome of your body comp test just by doing some weird tricks, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, yeah yeah and that's why and that's honestly why i started like looking into it and trying to write something too because i came from the gym setting and the gym i did went worked i didn't really do this much um but i had all these uh, people that would go to fat loss competitions or contests at gyms and they would purposely use them as a way to manipulate you know yeah. what we're doing before and after to make sure that no matter what you're guaranteed to lose weight. And it's, it's just, just kind of just ridiculous. So, um, yeah. I'll link that in the description for you guys to check out as well. It is a really, really fantastic series. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to, uh, and you can just, I mean, this one should be an easy one to crush, but, um, insulin sensitivity, I feel like was another one that you, it was really like uh, kind of like the insulin obesity model thing, um, which is bullshit, but you came out and talked about that. You were one of the first people. Um, so I'd love to hear why, because I think the listeners could use this. Like, why is that, is insulin sensitivity like not that important to focus on when it comes to overall fat loss? And also if, since you wrote that, cause that was an article you wrote a long time ago as well. Yeah. Um, has anything changed? Cause I know like there's been this debate about the P ratio and all these different things now as well. Has anything changed for you or is it still the same? Yeah. Nothing's changed for me. I mean, it's still the same. I mean, I mean, and there's been plenty of research since I wrote that, that has pretty much just verified what I was saying at the time. And I mean, Kevin Hall uh, is a re obesity researcher who's done some great work in this area, you know, and I mean, it's a simple model to test. Um, take two groups, um, you know, put them in a metabolic ward so you have really tight control over their diets. Feed one group like a high sugar diet or whatever. Feed the other group a low carb diet. You know, insulin levels are going to be different between the groups, you know, obviously for obvious reasons. And then just look at fat loss over time. And when you do that, 
fat loss is, as long as the energy deficit is the same, fat loss is actually the same. And if anything, what Kevin's research showed was that suggested that if anything, the high carbs uh, group do a little bit better. Now in, in a real world setting, um, that's probably not going to be the case. It's probably going to, you know, match up. You know, this was obviously <clears throat> a metabolic ward where they have super tight control over everything. But, um, but, but, the, but the bottom line is it, 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 it really doesn't matter. You know, I, I, you know, too many people think you can just somehow trick your body and, um, and, and what people need to remember is like, insulin's not the only hormone in your body. Like there's all kinds of hormones and factors and everything that control your fat balance, so leptin, you know, uh, um, corticosteroid, you know, or cortisol, uh, you know, all these things. You can't just look at insulin in a vacuum and then assume that, oh, well, if I eat more carbs, my insulin levels are higher and therefore I'm going to store more fat. It, it doesn't work that way. You know, it, it doesn't work that way at all in reality. Um, and uh, um, yeah, you know, assuming protein is the same, whether you're low carb or high carb, you know, as long as protein is the same, as long as the energy deficit is the same, uh, you're, you're going to lose the same amount of fat, you know? And um, again, it's one of those things where people get hung up on these mechanisms that, um, like I said, they start to look at these mechanisms in a vacuum and that's not how the body works. And so... You know, I, I've had a lot of success with people following, going from trying to do low carb and seeing a lot of weight loss with high carb. And I think it's one general population fat loss. It's just adherence. I'm allowing them to have carbs and they're like, oh my God, it's so much easier. Or B, it's people who train pretty hard and now they're training harder on top of being able to adhere yeah. to their diet. Just a lot of times high carbs really work. And I always tell people if insulin was going to make you really fat, why would like bodybuilders who get shredded injected into them? You know, I, I know. don't, I don't know the mechanisms behind that, obviously, but same time, I would got to imagine it's not going to make them fat if they're doing it to get ready for <laughs> getting stage lean, you know? Well, well, yeah. And then, and then I'll, I mean, or just, just look at endurance athletes who would consume huge amounts of carbs, mm -hmm. right? They're all super lean, right? I mean, it just, it's just the reality is it's just, you know, and then some people say, oh, well, I'm more carb sensitive and, or whatever. Well, the data doesn't even really support that either. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, what happens is usually what happens is, you know, sometimes the reason people do better on low carb, I mean, there is some evidence that sometimes when people go low carb, it can help with their appetite control. Mm -hmm. So they just end up eating less automatically. Um, but also what happens is usually when people cut out carbs, what are they cutting out? Oh, they're cutting out ice cream. They're cutting out cake. They're, they're actually cutting out foods that are high in fat and high in carbs usually just high calorie foods, <laughs> like yeah. that's what they're cutting out. And so, um, and so they just end up eating less without really realizing it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's actually for a lot of like just everyday people, that's actually more often than not, even like, Oh, I went paleo and lost a bunch of weight. It's like, well, no, you cut out a bunch of stuff that wasn't paleo. You didn't replace it with more paleo food. You just cut that out, you know, yeah. and now, or I, I stopped eating dairy and I lost, <clears> no, you just cut that out and it was calories. Stopped eating breakfast yeah. for intermittent fasting. Same thing. It's just, Yep. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's funny. And, and I, I remember reading that and just really appreciating you like laying the hammer on that, especially as somebody at the time, I mean, it was a long time ago. I was a young quote unquote, like recreational physique athlete who was like really trying to optimize insulin sensitivity. Cause it was like, this is, this is the key. And I was taught that by my bodybuilding coach yeah, 10 yeah. years ago. So it's like, this stuff matters. Um, and same thing with the body fat scanners it was just being able to debunk some of those things and 
giving proof to coaches like me to show clients of like, hey, like look at this research and look at what is actually being supported. Um, so uh, I appreciate putting that out. It's, it's great stuff. I'll link that in the show notes. Um, we're going to wrap this up now because it's almost out of hour. Um, I could probably keep going, man. This has been great. But what uh, can you tell everybody where they can find you, your content, your research review, everything that you have available because you got a lot of stuff out there. Uh, yeah, just uh, my website, weightology.net, W-E-I-G-H-T-O-L-O-G-Y.net. Um, I've got everything on there, the volume Bible that you talked about. I've got a frequency Bible. Um, I've got, you know, all my insulin series we just talked about, my body comp series. <clears throat> and that's all free content for people to see. And then if people want to keep up with like the latest research, um, I do have a research review uh, that is published monthly and we'll, we'll cover around six studies each month. Um, on various topics related to building muscle, losing fat, things like that. So, you know, if you're a person who wants to keep up on the latest research, but you're not like a science nerd and you don't want to have to like actually read the research or you don't know how to read the research, we, we kind of dumb it down for people. So, um, so yeah, I got my research review there. And uh, um, so, yeah, that's where uh, people can find me. So thank you. Yeah, I'll put all that in the show notes. I, uh, I often talk, as you, people listening know, I'm constantly recommending research reviews because I think one, even the people who can read research pretty good as coaches, you really can't read it as, and I always admit this, like, I, I think I know a little bit of it, but I don't interpret it nearly as well as, as some of you guys. And that's why I always go to yours, mass. I go to our CSO. Um, yep. You've had one of the, the longest standing ones. It's been out for a while. So I, I recommend it to people all the time, but I'll link that in the show notes as well as your other things. And uh, man, thank you for spending time with us. It's been great. Yeah. Thanks for having me.